Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week, there was some amazing health and science news. One of them was that we found out that there was a second person cured of HIV after getting a stem cell transplant. We only know this man as the London patient. He had a stem cell transplant from a donor who had a natural immunity to HIV. And over the course of time, the transplant changed his immune system and it gave him the donor's HIV resistance. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how it all worked out and if this is actually a cure. It's a little bit early to say that for sure. It's been about 18 months. You know, sometimes relapses have happened later. But this is the first person in about a decade to have reached this stage of an apparent cure. Timothy Ray Brown was cured about a decade ago, and there have been a lot of attempts since then to do the same thing. This guy had Hodgkin's lymphoma. He had been infected with HIV in 2003 and then was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2012 and just was failing treatments and connected with these researchers who, who tried a very difficult stem cell transplant. And because the donor that they got with that stem cell transplant, that donor had a natural immunity to the HIV virus. After he got that transplant, it changed the London patient's immune system and basically helped him build up a resistance to it. And as you said now, it's not necessarily he's been cured. It's been 18 months. He's been in remission that long. Right. What they did was look in a registry for a donor, and they found a donor who had this resistance to HIV. It's a small part of the population about uh, people of European descent. This man is from London, after all, so it was someone in, in this registry. And by giving him a transplant from this donor who was resistant to HIV, they basically changed his immune system. So between that and chemotherapy, I mean, so far he seems to... he doesn't have any detectable amounts of HIV in his body, and they've, they've done multiple, multiple tests. This isn't really readily available for everybody. So everybody that is infected with HIV, you can't necessarily go through the same process to uh, try to cure them. Right. There is a big research and effort underway to find a cure for HIV, but you've got 37 million people around the world infected with this virus. And this was a very difficult, very expensive procedure, and it's not something you would do. A stem cell transplant isn't something you would give to a person who is infected with HIV and could just take a pill every day to keep their virus in check. I mean, a stem cell transplant is a very dangerous procedure, risky, very hard on a person, and given to people with cancer and you know diseases that may kill them. So as the HIV experts all say, this is not something that is that could be applied to millions of people with, with HIV. It's too risky. It's very, very costly. But it is a proof of concept, and it shows that after the Berlin patient, the Berlin patient was not an anomaly. This is something that you could develop some tools or technologies out of, try to develop some types of gene therapy. So there is tremendous value to having had a second patient right. who responded to this treatment. In the news just recently, when this Chinese scientist claimed that he altered the genes of two twin girls to help make them resistant to HIV. It was this specific gene, CCR5, that they use the 
CRISPR gene editing tool on to deal with that. So uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing even more of that stuff in the news as well. As we noted, fewer than 1% of people of European descent actually have two copies of this mutation, you know, enough to be resistant to HIV. So it's something that you are going to be hearing more of. I mean, you know, there's been work underway to develop, use gene editing, as you mentioned, and to try to develop gene therapies that would make it possible for people to, if they are not resistant to HIV, to make them resistant. And and the way it works is that this is a gene through which 95% of HIV viruses enter cells in the body. But if you have this mutation, two copies of it, it kind of inactivates that gene. It prevents, therefore, the, the HIV virus or the HIV, HIV, I'm sorry, is, is prevented from entering the cells because there's no receptor there to take it in. And in the meantime, it is very exciting news. The London patient, he's off his antiviral medication and he's been in remission now for 18 months. So great news and we'll uh, you know pray for him to extend this and hopefully they can push him over the edge and you know say it is he has been cured of it as well yeah that would be great news and it seems like it's headed in that direction at least it's what they say so far it has been quite a while there haven't been any signs of it coming back there have been other patients as I mentioned who who either just failed the transplants or rebounded early and there have been you know there was a famous case of a baby in Mississippi who was given HIV medications very early early after birth in an attempt to prevent virus that she had inherited from her mother or, you know, received from her mother from taking hold. People thought that that baby had been cured, but the baby also relapsed a couple of years after going off the drug. So there have been a lot of disappointments in the cure research field. So this is, so far, really great news. Betsy McKay, senior writer for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The other big medical news this week was the FDA approving a controversial drug to help treat depression. It's the first new antidepressant to be greenlit in decades by the FDA. It's actually a nasal spray branded as Spravato, and it's made by Johnson & Johnson. It has a lot of similarities to the party drug ketamine. The benefits of this nasal spray is that it has a fast-acting impact on the depression symptoms, so people that have treatment-resistant depression, meaning they've used a combination of different drugs before and nothing has worked, this actually works pretty fast. It's supposed to be taken in conjunction with traditional depression medication. Peter Loftus, he's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on this new drug. Ketamine actually is a drug that's been around for a long time, and it does have a a medical use as an anesthetic. And so it's approved for use in people, but also used by veterinarians for animals. And as you mentioned, over the years, it began to be diverted, not for therapeutic use, but for party use. And it had nicknames like vitamin K or special K. And so at some point in more recent years, researchers began to study ketamine's use to treat depression. And so that is what eventually led Johnson & Johnson, one of the big pharma companies, to develop a version of ketamine. It's it's very, very closely chemically related. It's called S-ketamine, and the brand name is called Spravato. They ran a bunch of tests over several years to try to demonstrate that this was effective in treating people with depression, and primarily people who had tried other treatments for depression, and it wasn't really helping them. 
So the thing with this is it is a nasal spray. And the reason why it's so important now is because it's very fast acting on depression symptoms. One of the things that I didn't really realize is that other antidepressants like Prozac or things like that, they actually take weeks, sometimes months to really kick in in a patient. So this helps with the immediacy of some of those symptoms. And the FDA approved the use of this to be taken in conjunction with those other things. It's not like a total replacement. That's right. Yeah, they approved it to be taken with an oral antidepressant. So pills like Prozac and Zoloft, which are based on an older mechanism of action. And you're right, it takes roughly six weeks for those pills to really start to have an effect if they are even going to have an effect on a patient. And this is for people with treatment-resistant depression. What does that mean? It can mean people who have tried these older pills like Prozac and Zoloft and it didn't really work for them, or perhaps even people who have tried psychotherapy and it it doesn't seem to be making them better. Now, the FDA says this new drug, Spravato, could be an option. And and as you mentioned, it can be an option that in studies, it's something that can have an effect within hours as opposed to having to build up within the system over, over several weeks. The numbers are pretty large. Three to five million Americans suffer treatment-resistant depression. There was mixed results with the clinical trials. What happened there? The way they they designed these trials was to give some people an older antidepressant plus esketamine and then compare them with people who did not get esketamine but were just taking an older antidepressant. And so what they found was a couple of the studies showed that the, the combination did lead to an improvement in symptoms versus the control group. But in other studies, there was really no significant difference. And so that kind of presents a complicated picture and it's something that the FDA had to wrestle with. And you mentioned the advisory committee meeting, they routinely, for a lot of new drugs, will bring together a bunch of outside experts to kind of go over the clinical studies and to make a recommendation to the FDA. Is this something that the FDA should approve? And they voted 14 to 2 that the benefits of this drug outweighed the risks, but the dissenting votes, they had concerns about the safety and just the fact that there wasn't as clear of a consistent benefit across all of the studies as you might like to see. On the safety front, there's always concerns that people could abuse these new drugs and it is a nasal spray, so it's a lot easier to carry around. But that's not how it's going to be distributed. You have to be at a clinic where they'll administer the drug there with you know whoever's monitoring you and they monitor the person for you know any side effects. And then uh, I guess after after the uh, waiting period, then you can leave. So it's not like they're actually going right. to be giving people the nasal spray to carry around. Having this requirement that it be done in a clinic serves a couple purposes, and one of them is to try to guard against diversion to elicit use. You know, people who are just using it or trying to use it to get a high recreationally. But it also serves the purpose of keeping the patient in an office, either you know, a hospital or a clinic, for a couple hours after the dosing, because there are these side effects that can take hold within that first hour or two, like sedation, so drowsiness. So they don't want people taking this, feeling drowsy, getting behind the wheel their car. They want a little bit of a cushion time. And then there's also these, what you might describe as trippy effects that it can cause something that they call dissociation, which is like colors seem brighter and you feel somewhat of a detachment from reality. And so these are things that they want patients, if they're going to have these side effects, supposedly they just, they they generally go away within an hour and a half or two hours. And so that's why they want them sitting in an office and not just doing this at home or out and about. 
How much is this going to cost? With the dosing that they recommend, you take this a lot for the first month. Like you would go into a clinic maybe two or three times a week, I believe. And the expected first month cost is somewhere between $4,700 and $6,700. And then after that, the dosing can become less frequent so that it would be between $2,300 and $3,500. That's the list price. The company, Johnson & Johnson, expects that there will be insurance coverage. So if that pans out, then the patient's share of that cost might not be as great. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. R&B singer R. Kelly had a pretty tough week. First, he went on a CBS with Gail King and did an interview that lasted nearly 80 minutes where he just went insane. He was yelling at the camera. He was pumping his fist. Gail King kept her composure the whole time, you know, saying, Robert, Robert, calm down. Uh, it was truly some amazing audio. Uh, he s- denies all the allegations against him. He says everyone is lying about him. He's playing the victim because he has too big of a heart. On top of that, R. Kelly also went to jail for not paying $161,000 of child support. My producer Miranda joins us to break it all down. To say that it was explosive would be an understatement. I have never seen anybody outside of like a Jerry Springer stage lose their mind like this. It was really something spectacular to watch. Gail and King spoke to him for nearly an hour and a half on Tuesday. A portion of it aired on Wednesday and they're going to be rolling out bits and pieces of it through the rest of the week to get a little bit more of the story. And essentially it all boils down to everybody's lying. It's a big conspiracy (laughs) against him. Why would he have women chained into a basement? He doesn't know what a cult is. And all he wants to do is make music and see his kids. Gail King, for her part, was getting a lot of praise because she kept her composure. Maybe she didn't ask or push back too much on him, but you don't need to with the reaction he gives. Yeah, there's this big picture where she's sitting down calmly in the chair and he's standing up with his hand and his finger pointed in the air And you can just see the anger and the frustration that he has. That's a face of fury. Right. Later on, they even asked Gail King, were you worried he might hit you or something? She said, I was never afraid of him. I was just afraid I might get caught in the crossfire because he makes eye contact with the camera at one point. And that's when he goes crazy. Let's play a couple clips. This is his answer to why all of the allegations, all of these women have the same story, why they're all coming after him. You can start a rumor on a guy like me or a celebrity just like that. All you have to do is push a button on your phone and say, so-and-so did this to me. R. Kelly did this to me. And if you get any traction from that, if, you, if you're able to write a book from that, if you're able to get a, a, a reality show, then any girl that I had a relationship in the past that I, it just didn't work out, she can come and say the same exact thing. When asked if he blames social media for the resurgence of all these rumors, as he calls them. He's not blaming social media, but he wants to point out the power of social media. And Gail King made a good point. Why do all these different women who don't know each other have the same story? And that's that's where he says, you know, it just takes one to throw the story out there and everybody can make up the same exact thing. Things took a turn. He was getting very heated. Gail King asked him, did you have sex with any underage girls? He denied all that stuff. And this is the point where he loses his mind. He stands up. They have to take a break in the middle of his rant right now. This is this is incredible audio. Stop it. Y'all quit playing. Quit playing. I didn't do this stuff. This is not me. I'm fighting for my life. Y'all killing me with this. I can't have 30 years of my career. Robert. 30 years of my career. 
and I can't do it. Y'all just don't want to believe the truth. You don't want to believe it. At this point, we briefly pause the interview to give Kelly a moment. His publicist helped calm him down. I hope this camera keep going. No, we're going to let the camera keep rolling. This is not true. This doesn't even make sense. Why would I hold all these women? It's actually kind of a comical moment because they did pause the cameras. And when they come back, the makeup team is patting him down because he's like sweaty and so worked up. His manager is like rubbing his back. Yeah, they had to calm him down. It's just an insane story. Here's the last clip I want to play because he paints himself the victim in all of this. I need help. What kind of help? This is the kind of help I need. Yes, what kind of help? I need somebody to help me not have a big heart because my heart is so big. People betray me and I keep forgiving them. Not that I want to be quoting Michael Avenatti, but he is (laughs) representing two of the women that are accusing R. Kelly of this stuff in the latest part of this. He says that R. Kelly's tears are out of fear and despair. He knows that after over two decades of sexually abusing underage girls, we blew this wide open and we have him and his enablers dead to rights. And I mean, I have to say that rings true. It's it's mm-hmm. a man who's nervous about what awaits him. R. Kelly, right after this interview, is back in jail again. Yeah, he was taken back into custody yesterday afternoon after appearing at a child support hearing. He owes $161,000 in back child support. And he came to the hearing ready to pay 50000 but the judge wanted the whole amount. And he said that because R. Kelly doesn't have the whole amount, he's got to go to jail. R. Kelly says he's not able to work because of the documentary. And saying at the end of the day, the kids still don't have any money. So his next hearing is scheduled for March 13th. We had talked about that photo of R. Kelly standing up with his finger pointed in the air and Gail King kind of just patiently waiting in her chair, just quiet. So I wanted to share a tweet about that that went viral. It says the photo of R. Kelly yelling at Gail King should remind everyone that rape isn't about sex. It is an act of violence about power and control. And that leads us into the next chapter of this whole story. We were mentioning that the two women that are currently in a relationship with R. Kelly were also doing an interview with Gail King. Their parents have said that R. Kelly does exert control over them, that he's brainwashed them into not talking to their families and that they are part of this sex cult that keeps going around. What did they have to say in their interview, Miranda? Gail King got to interview Asriel Clary, 21 years old, and Jocelyn Savage, 23 years old. And they claimed that all of this is nonsense, that they're absolutely in love with R. Kelly. But what's interesting about their interview is that the people at CBS were assured that she could speak directly to the girls one-on-one, that R. Kelly would not be in the room. It started off that way, but as soon as the camera started rolling, he made his way into the room and started coughing loudly when the girls were speaking about things he didn't like really? to make his presence known. Gail asked them, are you guys in a relationship with him? And they said, yeah, we're both in a relationship with him. And even the women were saying themselves that my parents pushed me on him and told me to take pictures with him. Uh, so it just kind of adds to the whole confusion about it. Who knows if these women are, are being held under duress still? We may never know because R. Kelly completely sabotaged that interview. We could have gotten something good. Or maybe they are all three in a loving thruple. And this is all for naught. We'll never know. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.